Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name is Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old loan officer from California. I started this podcast back in April 2020. Got furloughed from my job for about three months. And during those three months, I was very honest with myself. I was like, we can either start emotionally eating. We can start suppressing these feelings of not feeling worthy because you've lost this thing that you attach so much of your identity to. Or we could start that podcast that you've always been wanting to start. So I decided to go with that second option and I'm so glad I did. I've interviewed over 130 people since then. It's been incredible. I've got to interview music artists and seven-figure entrepreneurs and just all these incredible people with different stories and different ways of how they got to where they are and just hearing about their journey, hearing about their shit show moments because we all have shit show moments and just learning how to navigate them better and learning how to learn from them and take them and create something magical out of them. And I'm so glad that I get to interview all these incredible people and I am such a big believer that you can radically change your life in a year. You can just radically change your circumstances, where you're at. And I remember being 19 and just trying to get a job and applying to like, I was applying to Ross and like a smoothie bar and like all these places wouldn't take me. And I was like so offended. I was like, why is no one taking me? And then I finally passed my NMLS test and then I got a job with a major mortgage company. And I was like, oh, that's why they didn't take me because I was meant to go down and get this job instead of that job. And I went from being 19 with $0 in my bank account and just being so stressed about money and so stressed about like is it going to come into my life do I what am I going to do about this to being 20 year old with over 60 grand in savings and I think one of the big changes that I made between those two was even when I had zero in the savings account I still believed that I was abundant I still believed that money was going to flow into my life I still believed in something that I couldn't see at the time because I knew it was just a matter of time before it was going to come so I'm such a huge believer and you can radically change your scenario you can step into that next version of you and that next version of you that higher self version of you she's not that far away as you think i think she's just there's just garbage in the way and it's just undercovering that garbage that's in the way of you getting to her and just stepping into that and the next version of you with the next level of results it's something i'm super passionate about and i hope from this podcast that you get to hear these stories and relate with these people and just relate with like not necessarily like just reconnecting to that path of what you want to do and reconnecting to that higher version of you and what you wanted to be when you were younger and what lights you up and what brings you joy so i'm so excited for you guys to hear these episodes would love to connect with you on instagram my instagram is the shit show of my 20s dm me and love to have a conversation and feel free to share this with someone you know will love it and you can also leave a review on itunes i would love that today's guest is michael harris I love chatting with him. He is incredible. So he is an author, coach, trainer, yoga teacher, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Endless Stages. His first entrepreneurial gig was selling blackberry pies door to door when he was six. Over the years, he has dabbled, more like dived into photography, real estate, option training, coaching, and yoga. One of his specialties is helping anyone move from fear of speaking in front of others to powerfully sharing their message in front of any size group or audience. He's grateful that he's been able to take his personal challenges and help people find out what inspires them. For years, he has struggled with health issues, addictions, and low self-esteem. Then one day he had enough and became willing to make a change. 
wasn't easy for him. He had to stop dreaming about what he wanted and began to take massive action by playing the law of G-O-Y-A. Many of his friends and colleagues argued with him to use metamorphosis to inspire others. At one point, Jack Canfield reminded him that your mass is your message, and he went to join him on his book launch of his number one best-selling book, Falling Down, Getting Up. He's blessed to have Rick Frischman and David Hancock to be his publishers. He has owned and partnered in several successful yoga studios and coached other studio owners around the world on attracting and enrolling new clients while increasing revenue and profits over 40 million in sales. In addition, he has helped train and certified about 7,000 yoga teachers to get untwisted and speak in small and large groups. And he has previously hosted his successful podcast, Falling Up Secrets, where he's had guests such as Les Brown, Thomas Baylor, sought after pain specialist David Clark, and many others. And in this episode, we go into so many incredible things. So he had such an interesting journey in his 20s. He had a near-death experience. We talk about what inspired him to create endless stages, what he's learned from Les Brown, his faith, going against medical vice, and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started. Awesome. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. So I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we might resonate with. Let's start there. Thank you, Sophia, for having me on, on your show today. And when I first saw your show, The Shit Show of the 20s, I kind of thought, wow, yes, let's see what I can remember about the 20s, the decade of the 20s. I, I've had quite the ride and quite the journey in my life to be where I am today. I'm way out of my 20s today. I'm 63 years old at, at this moment. And I was probably voted least likely to survive not only my teens, but also my 20s. I went into the 20s pretty excited. I was a photographer. I enjoyed photography a lot. My grandma had given me a, a camera in eighth grade for Christmas. And it was like, you know, my prized possession, a Nikon 1000. And, and I would go out it was a big camera at the time. Today, it's an antique. But I would go out and I would take pictures of anything and anybody I could. I just, I, I like that creative sense. I, I like that visual. I like capturing moments. And I still do. My primary camera today, though, is my iPhone. Or my camera's got an iPhone attached to it, however you want to look at it, right? So going into my 20s and I would I was traveling around, I, I had a van and I would travel around and I, I would do portrait work on location. I also was doing a lot of creative media work, videos and, and such at the time. Totally different world today with, with all of that. I really liked it. I, I shot some weddings. I didn't end up being very good at it because I didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like the weddings is because I would have the groom's mom wanting one thing and the bride's mom wanting another thing. And I'm just trying to do what I know worked, right? Mm -hmm. As a wedding photographer. And so I just, I didn't like that. You know, it, as a joyous you know occasion as weddings can be, mothers and mothers-in-law can really 
pulls strings and sometimes differently, right? So I, I, I struggle with that. And I just said, I can't do that. I'm going to do more portrait work because I was good at that and get paid for that. And it was a controlled environment. Sit down on that chair, sit down on that log, lean against that tree, whatever it might have been. I could control the environment much differently than I could in, in a wedding. At the same time, I was pretty wild. I, I, I had gotten wild in, in my teenage years, and I had suffered an accident in when in 1971, I was 12 years old, and I was in a water skiing accident. And I hit the beach. It was a oval lake, and, and I was kind of a hotshot water skier as a kid. My godfather had actually invented part of the binding that is still used on water skis today. So, I mean, I was really integrated into water skiing and really liked it. And, you know, it was just another day and I was going to do a beach landing and I hit the beach pretty hard, you know, kind of one of those smacking moments. And initially they told me nothing was wrong with me, that I was bruised and that I would be okay. Well, the next day I ended up in a hospital back in Portland. We had been on the Oregon coast at a lake down there. And next day at a hospital in Portland, and I, I woke up 10, 12 days later from a coma. And I found out I had had a bunch of my liver removed, 60% of my liver, my gallbladder, 21 blood transfusions. I learned later that at that time anyway, I don't know what it is today, but at that time I was the youngest person to survive and have that much of their liver removed. Well, at the same time, without trying to make this a three-hour interview, <laughs> at the same time, I had a near-death experience. You know, I, I died. I found myself surrounded by spirit, and I didn't want to come back. So here I am. I'm in a garden-type environment, and I wanted to stay where it was. And it was the purest. I, I Love seems to be a not a strong enough word for the feeling that I was having at the moment. And I felt myself going back, going back to my body. And I didn't want to go back. And I reached out and I said, I don't want to go back. And they said, well, you're not through yet. And that is the moment that I believe that I woke up from the coma is when I came back and, you know, the nurses were there, my parents were there, my mom was there. And I started wait, wait, waking back up again. Well, I started healing, and one of the things that I always did was smile, regardless of what was going on. But as I was healing, like I mentioned to you earlier, I listened to your previous interview with your previous guests about the body. You know, I have scars from my waist to my armpit and several on, on the side of my body, all surgical scars. They, they weren't from the accident itself. They were from the surgery. And I had terrible body. You know, I went from this very active kid at 12 years old, getting into Little League, getting into girls, you know, getting into my playing my saxophone, all sorts of different things. And all of a sudden I was laid up. And so instead of starting seventh grade when in September, when you're supposed to, you know, I didn't start, I didn't start going back to school until January. I had had a tutor for part of the period before that, but I also had a tube in the side of my body, a drain tube that I had there through about March of that year. So I had terrible body image. You know, I used to be the captain of the teams as a kid. And, you know, so I went from the captain of the teams to not being able to play. And it was devastating 
at the time for me. And I got really mad at God. You know, I, I always believed in God. I grew up around a Presbyterian church, baptized Presbyterian. But coming back, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay where I was. And as these things started happening and people started pointing at me in the hallways at the school, there's Michael. Well, you know, he had his kidneys out. Well, I didn't have my kidneys out. So there's just all of this stuff that kids can be mean. And so all of these people, not all of them, I have many close friends. I still have a friend from that same period that lives down the street from me. So I have lifelong friends. But at the same time, I was no longer picked to be able to play basketball, you know, at recess or anything else or in gym class. And I didn't want to take my shirt off because of my scars. And it was really difficult. So to make, again, a not a three hour, probably a three day story much shorter, as I accelerate, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit wild. I start experimenting a, a little bit with alcohol and pot and I found a, a great amount of relief at the time because the people that were doing those things didn't care about my scars or, or anything else. And I felt accepted. It was okay. So I felt bigger than I really was. And, you know, that's, that's addiction. You know, that's, you know, part of the nature of addiction. So coming in the 20s, doing my photography, really enjoying that a lot thinking I'm going to be a photographer for life. I have some shows in some galleries in Portland of my nature photography, not my portrait stuff. So I, I was starting to get pretty good. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I was also developing vascular disease. My, my dad had passed in 1985 of a heart attack. It was his third or fourth heart attack. And he died young, 58 years old. And about a year later, I started not being able to walk very well. And I started walking on a cane and I ended up at OHSU, Oregon Health Sciences University at 27 years old. And they said, your right leg is 100% blocked. Your left leg is 65% blocked. You're likely to lose your legs. And I know this is a shit so, so I can swear. And I, I said to the doctor, I said, fuck you, you're not taking my legs. It's not going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, that's what I said. It's not going to happen. They, they did the surgery on my legs, which is bypass surgery, the same as heart, to, heart but they did it in the legs. You know, it's called a fempop, fem, femoral popliteal artery. And so they did that, and they gave me some initial relief for a while, and then they wanted to do surgery again eight months later. And because my leg had reblocked again, my left leg had reblocked. And I said, no, it's not going to happen. You're not going to do it. And they surrounded my bed, the surgeons there at OHSU, all the professors and everything said, you got to have this. And I said, no, I don't know why I'm not going to do it. At the time, I didn't really know anything about healing or natural healing or anything like that. And I signed out of the hospital AMA against medical advice. They, you know, wheeled me to the door and I got up and I had my cane and I started walking away, you know, to my friend's car with my cane, not knowing what I was going to do. So I'm struggling, terrible body image. Not only had had my scars here, I'm also zipped from my ankles to my groin from my vascular surgeries. And 
I wouldn't take my pants off. I didn't want anybody to see me. And then I read a, another book and I started going, wow, maybe this is something that I can do. And I went to my mom and I said, mom, will you pay for this? And she says, yeah, I'll pay for it. So I ended up at a place called the Pritikin Longevity Center, which is Santa Monica, California, pretty close to the Santa Monica Pier, just south of a few blocks, really close. And the Pritikin Longevity Center at the time was really more for older people, overweight people, unhealthy people. And I thought, you know, I'm 28 years old. I show up at this place, so I'm on my cane. And I'm using the wall to walk and I'm looking around the corner. My mom at the time was actually living in, in LA and I looked around the corner because I wanted to see the ocean and then walked back and went in. Well, the doctors at OHSU had previously told me when it hurts, because when you have peripheral vascular disease and claudication in your legs, it's extremely painful because you're not getting enough blood to your muscles. So you're working your muscles without the normal amount of blood you need. So the doctors there at the Pritikin Center said, when it hurts, walk more. And I went, what? They said, what you're doing when you're beginning to walk more, you're beginning to build blood vessels. So here I am, 28 years old, and they said, go out on the boardwalk and walk. I don't know if you've been on that boardwalk there in Santa Monica or any of the mm -hmm. listeners have. Yeah. But essentially, it goes from there down to Marina del Rey. And it's quite, a, it's quite a walk. It's a couple of miles. And again, I'm 28 years old. I'm on the boardwalk. I'm in my long pants because scars and in a shirt, scars. And there's a lot of girls and a lot of women rollerblading in their bikinis. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be the 98-pound weekly sitting around here. 28 years old. So I would walk. And there's a, a little wall there. It's a couple of feet high. I would walk maybe 10 or 12 feet and sit down. I'd get back up. I'd walk 12 or 13 feet, sit down. And I would keep doing that. So literally in a two-week period, I was walking from starting out from about 10 feet with a cane to be able to walking tall for about two miles. So it happened that quickly. Pretty considered is also a plant-based diet type food. They didn't call it plant-based then, you know, because plant-based is a big thing now. But they call it plant-based. So in the combination of the food and of the walking, my life changed. And coming out of my 20s now, I was beginning to feel stronger, more vibrant, more hope, less concern about my body image. You know, I would at least take my shirt off or I'd at least put on a swimsuit, something like that. It, it was a struggle, but as I moved through it, I started feeling better. The other thing that, that I did right, right there, because like I had mentioned earlier, you know, I had been pretty wild in my teenage years and, and even into my 20s, and had been strug struggling with getting sober, and I was able to get sober. So I'm, today I'm sober 33 years. I'm sober more than half my life today. So all of those things combined, coming out of my 20s, letting go of the addictions, beginning to walk, and then the other thing that, that happened when I was at the Pritikin Center, they had a yoga class in the basement. It was more kind of a stretching cl class for old people, I'm going to call it, right? <laughs> 
And, you know, I'm, I'm in there kind of stretching, kind of moving, but I really liked it. So when I ended up back in Portland, I, where I was living at the time, I started doing more yoga. So I was walking, eating my plant-based diet and doing yoga as much as I could. I got a job instead of a photographer's job. I was now a mortgage broker and I started doing that. And I ended up getting a, a, a job a couple of years later as an assistant controller of a small company. Again, that is a whole nother thing too. Great job. I hated it, but I loved it at the same time, right? It was one of those jobs. It, it was a great foundation for my business today. I'm talking a lot. Do you have any questions? Yes, I have a lot of questions. So I want to go back to the near-death experience because I feel like there's a before and then after to that. Like there's your life before, there's your life after that. And like, what's one of the biggest things you feel like you learned from that whole experience? And what is the biggest things you feel like you took away from that? Well, one of the things that I was told as part of that whole net near-death experience. And it's talked about more in my, in my book, Falling Down, Getting Up. I heard everything is going to be okay. And I still hear that. And no matter what, everything's going to be okay. So today, I have a great amount of faith that even with everything going on in the world today, everything going on in my personal life today, everything is going to be okay. Everything is okay. And you know, I can push back on that because sometimes I can be, I have some anxiety and some fear about what's going on in the world today. Because it, it can be scary, everything that has happened. We don't know what's going to happen. And whatever happens, I still have that same feeling of everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like that faith, do you think if you had that faith, you would ha- have like enough guts to like go against medical advice, be able to do all that later on? Do you think that kind of like contributed to later on being able to kind of do what you feel is best for you and be able to walk and be able to have that perseverance? Do you feel like those two were connected? That's a great question. And as much as I've reflected on it, I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. So what's coming to me now is that idea of when I walked out of the hospital. And at the time, I had no idea what I was going to do other than I wasn't going to do another surgery. And I didn't know that it was going to be okay. I love that question. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's good. Yeah, yeah. because I'm wondering, because I feel like you have to have a lot of faith to do that because you have all those doctors around you. You have all these people who have all these degrees and, you know, all this advice and like they know what's best for you. Yes. But that takes a lot of guts to go say, hey, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I had the professor, an assistant professor of vascular surgery there. Some of the top guys literally in the world about this. And I was saying, no, not going to happen. What are you going to do? I don't know, but it's not going to happen. I'm not going to have surgery every eight months. I knew that. Again, I didn't know about yoga. I didn't know about walking. I didn't know about difference in food and, you know, all of that. I had no idea. I was clueless. That's another book. You just gave me another book. (laughs) (laughs) That is a whole book. It it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because I feel like that that that's like an underlying theme I'm feeling is like this faith element is an underlying theme of like all these decisions because so many things happen that kind of throw us off. And if we don't have that underlying theme of faith, then we're going to choose to listen to others or listen to someone else or do something we really don't want to. So I feel like that underlying theme is really like there. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I didn't, this didn't happen at that time, but later on, I heard this and I remember the exact time that I heard it. I read a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that's only a few books. I've read, I don't know how many books in my lifetime, a lot. And getting ideas from what other people's experiences are, what other people's ideas are, is really great. It, It really helps a lot. And then when I sat down to write my book, I kind of struggled with the book. And then I heard somewhere in there, this was maybe early 2000s, someone in there, I heard the idea that you can read all the other books you want, but unless you do your own journaling, your own writing, and self-reveal what's true for you, you're basing your life much on the reflection of what other people's experiences are. It's not bad. It triggers things, yet that process, again, of self-revelation is powerful. And I didn't realize how powerful it really was. The writing of of my story, or a portion of my story, that the writing of of my story was like a swoosh, kind of like, and I, I, I remember when it came out, and I was in New York, and I was going there for a publicity event before my book was published. And I didn't know who was going to publish it. I had no idea at the time. I was waiting for 50 pink slips, you know, rejections, you know, thank you for your submission. We don't like, thank you for your submission. We don't like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was at this press event and I started talking to this New York gentleman. I mean, that's, I have no other way to describe him at the time. He was kind of like a New York gentleman, you know, and I was this guy from Oregon. Right. And we started talking and he ended up being a publisher and he had published people like Henry Kissinger and, you know, all sorts of different. I had no idea. And I started telling him about my book. And and within five minutes, he says, I want to publish your book. So I never even officially created a submission. Even when when he said that, I still didn't have to do a submission. He just said, send me your manuscript and we'll get it done. And I said, well, I'm trying to finish some things up here. And I've got some things in here and I don't know whether I should say them. They're pretty self-revealing, right? And he said, the more self-revealing you can be, the better. He says, you're going to connect with the reader and your listeners and your audience better that way if you're willing to reveal those things than if you're not willing to reveal those things. So put it in. So that was the second time that I heard this thing about self-revelation and about being open about you know, our journey. And so like, if anybody's listening, or to those that are listening, I should rephrase that to those that are listening, you don't have to go out and write a book. And the idea of journaling, or writing your your story in some way is pretty remarkable. Because as I was doing that, I realized so many different things that I didn't get from reading somebody else's, because it was coming out of me. And when this book did hit the stands and did start to be sold, you know, people started going, holy shit, I never realized that happened in your 20s. I never realized that you went through all that. Why are you alive, dude? You know, those type of reactions I, I, I started getting a lot. I had a few naysayers. I had some people, you know, writing me, oh, yeah, you know, what do you know about falling down, getting up? It's just like, whatever. But going back to the publisher, Rick Frischman, Rick said, you are going to get haters. He says, it's just 
part of the deal. So he says, so celebrate those when they come in, because you know those people are going to like it. They're never going to like it. It's okay. But all these other people are going to like it and maybe get something out. So again, coming back to that idea, I would invite anybody that's looking for some clarification, some insight, is to start journaling every day. Write a book, literally write a book. You know, one of the things that we do today, part of what I do today is I'm co-founder of a company called Endless Stages. And we both, my partner and I, Sean Tyler Foley, we really focus on helping people get their voice out, get their message out. In today's world, it is so important. There's a lot of people that can't speak. There's a lot of people that can't speak their truth. There's a lot of people that will go to jail if they say something that governments and political entities don't like. So I believe it's more important than ever to get our voice out in any way we can. When we go through this storytelling structure and how to create your stories, may I just briefly yeah. tell you what that is? So we, we take your life and let's say, I'm not going to say in in the 20s, let's say when you're 40. So at 40 years old, if you're 40 years old, you divide your life into five different periods. So that gives you five, eight year period. And if you're 42 or 43, don't worry about eight point whatever. Just kind of go back to 40 and divide it by five. If you're closer to 45, go that way. You know, try try not to get caught up in, in the math. Of it. So you, you have five eight-year periods. And for each eight-year period, you go back and you write out the most vivid experiences that you can remember from those periods. And then with those, then you start to break it down into stories. Well, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I will say it's easy to get caught up in the shit stories, the traumas, the fights, the relationships, the money, whatever might. One of the things that I always encourage and invite people to do is also to write other things. Like, even though I had some of this traumatic stuff go on, in Little League Baseball, I, I remember playing third base. I caught a line drive. There was a runner on third. It was bottom of the ninth that that runner came, went in, and I hadn't caught that ball. We might have lost the game, but I line drive, I catch the ball, I take the base, we got two outs, we win. So look at those times, too, that are fun or joyous. You know, I can talk about how I learned how to surf as a kid on Waikiki Beach at 10 years old in the 60s. So again, moving not just in the trauma, but those experiences. I can talk about Blackberries and how my first entrepreneur journey was selling Blackberries and Blackberry pies. I didn't really ever think about that until I went through this process. So again, take your age, divide it by five, look at those most vivid memories, remembering to also use those great memories and not just those traumatic type memories and start to build your story because those things, those positive type events that have happened in our lives are really important, you know, because we don't want to just build it on the trauma. We want to build it on the, the joyful times as well. Yeah. Yeah. And is this your first book or have you written a book before this? No, the Falling Down, Getting Up was my first book. And then 
I was invited this other book, Expert Success Solutions. You can see Rick's name, Rick Frischman, Wendy and Rick. I was asked to contribute to that book as well. So I'm a contributing author to that. Both went number one. My Falling Down, Getting Up book, for those that know Jack Canfield, a lot of people know who he is, Chicken Soup for the Soul, all that kind of stuff. He joined me in, in promoting this book. And another guy named Jake, Jay Conrad Levinson, which was the father of guerrilla marketing, he read it and he considered, even though it's not a marketing book, he considered my approach to healing my life as guerrilla marketing. You know, and guerrilla marketing is really about doing those out of mainstream, unusual things to promote your business. So I was doing those unusual out of the mainstream type things. Instead of doing surgery, I was walking up and down the boardwalk in Santa Monica, you know, those type of, of ideas. So I feel really blessed on the way that that book came out, not only out of me, the publication of it, the, the people that helped me promote it, et cetera. Wow. I want to actually go back during the book writing process, what insecurities came up for you while you were writing? Oh, a lot. I mean, just, just the sheer thing of even writing. And for a period, I had hired somebody and she would actually write it. We had a, a little recorder there at the time. I think it was still a cassette. You know, a lot of people don't know what the cassette tapes are, but <laughs> we had a little cassette recorder and she would kind of interview me and I would tell her stories and then she would write them out and she would, she would then write them out and then give me the drafts of it. So Part of it came out that way. I was insecure as a writer. And even in, in talking to Rick, there were many times where I said, I don't feel like a writer. And, you know, Rick would say, you wrote this book, dude, you're a writer. And I said, well, I don't know all this proper literature stuff. You know, I didn't go to school to be a writer. He says, it doesn't matter. You spoke from your heart. He says, that matters more than the commas and the periods and the proper structure. So I had a lot of insecurity just about writing. Even though I liked English in high school, I liked it a lot. But I, there was a lot of insecurities about that. And of course, there was the insecurities about what I should say and what I shouldn't say. How deep down the rabbit hole do I go? How much do I reveal? Uh, I had a lunch with an aunt a couple of years ago that I haven't seen for years. She read my book and, you know, she said, I had no idea. Your mom never told me that those things happened. My mom had passed too. Your mom never told me that those things happened. She says, it's amazing. You're still here. So mm -hmm. the writing of it and the revelations of it, of other people reading it. And at the same time, it was such a great release that I was no longer keeping that within. Everybody knew. So it was all okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to think about the release of it, to think about how it just kind of releases it from you, from it constantly being only on you in a yeah. way, by having it on paper. Do you think everyone should write a book, even if they don't publish it? Like, you know, even if no one sees it? I, I want to say yes and no. And I don't know exactly what those yes and no's answers are yet. It's kind of like writing our life story is really powerful. One of the things that, that I, if, if I remember right, in listening to some of your past interviews, you were talking about, if, if I remember going to work at a bank, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you, you went to work as, as a bank, at the bank. And I'm sure there's lots of stories around that whole thing that, that happened in a lot of internal emotions that, that were going on at the time in relationship to that. So when we write our stories or we're journaling 
when we come to those places, even in a work environment, knowing who we are as a person, not just what has happened in our life, but knowing who we are makes us more powerful than anything that we do. More powerful, more effective, more better in relationships. And I just don't mean loving relationships. I mean, any type of relationships. So like today, whether it's myself or we're helping somebody out, they're really able to, to step up. You know, we, 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 we connected through something called PodMath. So our group, the Endless Stages, we have five of the top 10 people on the PodMatch leaderboard right now are all came through Endless Stages. And we have a relationship with Alex over there, PodMatch. And we're going to take over that top 10 pretty soon. We're going to have the top 10 leaderboard over there, right? Mm-hmm. And I say this, not, not so much to brag, I say this because the people that are there now, just a couple of months ago, were hesitant, didn't want to get out there, didn't want to speak. And now they're out there and you can't stop them. They're on fire. You know, and within 30 to 60 days, they're on that leaderboard. I mean, that's how fast it can happen. Once we write that down, and I heard you say, you know, that release idea, once we write that down, once we write down like that story structure that I mentioned, and that's just kind of an overview. There's some deeper parts to that as well. That story structure helps us with our message. It helps us with our story. So each person is developing their own story, their own connections, their their own relationships. And they're, you know, somebody in our group may, somebody may listen to them and feel really connected to them. And then they listen to me and they go, and eh, not so much. Yeah. But then somebody might listen to me and go, wow, listen to that guy. And then they would listen to this other person go, oh, not so much. So each one of us and our stories have the ability to affect people in so many different ways. And we're not going to all affect everybody in a positive way. Again, somebody may be listening to this show that's triggered by what I say that may write a comment somewhere along the line, go, I heard this interview with Michael and it sucked. I hated it. You know, that happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. And from the book, did you come up with a podcast after the book or did your podcast come before the book? Oh, the the podcasting wasn't big when when I started writing. And that's why part, part of the reason I went to this publicity event at the time in New York was publicity was bigger than podcasts. You know, podcasts today are everywhere. I did start my own podcast and I may restart it again called Falling Up Secrets. And it's basically, I interviewed a number of different people, both known and unknown. So I've interviewed people like Les Brown, for those that don't know him. He's one of the most famous motivational, inspirational speakers out there. Guy named Thomas Baylor. He's a composer and producer. He worked primarily, well, he did a lot of, worked with a lot of different people. With Michael Jackson, he did all his voice production for him and wrote some of Michael's songs. So I was able to have him on the show. I brought on some pain specialists since pain is, is, is a big thing on overcoming that. So I really like, again, getting voices out. I've said this over and over and over, getting voices out into the world one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, what did you learn from Les Brown? Well, Les Brown is really great. And, and I met him years ago. And 
I, I actually ended up speaking on a stage about taking quantum leaps, about how we can take quantum leaps. Let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. Have you ever blushed? All the time. All the time. So a quantum leap is not really used in science. A quantum jump is used in science. And a quantum jump is essentially a change in state from one state to another. Blushing is an example of a change of state, one state to another. And there's lots of examples. I won't get into it, into it all right now, but understanding that and learning that gives us the ability to take quantum leaps anytime we want. We don't all have to like take one step at a time. Sometimes it's slow, but sometimes we can make a decision and change it overnight. And, and I didn't even realize, and I'll give you an example back in my 20s, in my late 20s, where I was, I was unhealthy, you know, vascular disease, and I had gone out drinking one night, and I ended up in the hospital, and literally, I said, no more. I mean, just, I had that, and I've had this a couple of times, that swooshing feeling. It's like, I knew when I made that decision, everything was going to be different. Listeners probably have that too, and they may not have identified it as a quantum leap, but I consider that an emotional, spiritual, mental type quantum leap. We make a decision and it can happen that fast. Things change quickly when we're willing to employ it, I'll say. Yeah, that's interesting because when I think of quantum leap, I don't think of that. Right. Like I think of like something big, yeah. like you have no money one day have a business that's doing really well the next like later on like I think of something big like that but I've never thought of it in terms of like a decision yeah. in that like I always think of it has to be something like huge yeah yeah it doesn't it can be something as small as blushing you know mm -hmm. um, a sea cucumber can go from a state of being totally soft to rock hard in a second if something comes along and wants to eat it and it bites down on it and it feels like a rock rather than a sea cucumber, so it lets it go. But it has to make that decision in a second. Again, there's examples throughout nature like that that show us that quantum leaps happen all the time, or a quantum jump, as science calls it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I didn't fully answer your question yeah. about Les. One of the things that Les always says is, never tell a story without a point, and never tell a point without a story. And so not only do I know Les, but I, I've been through some of his speaker training uh, a number of years ago and fascinating guy. I love him. When I interviewed him, he didn't know that I knew who one of his mentors were early on, a guy named Jack Boland, which Church of Christ in Detroit. He didn't know that, that I knew that. So when, when I was able to talk to Les about that, I says, I know Jack Boland was one of your mentors. And he talked to you about getting out in front of people. And that's before he was really big and stepping out there. He said, how do you know that? And I said, research, dude, research. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love Les and, you know, he's made such a great impact on so many different people in so many different ways. Again, I can get into his whole story. But again, how long do you want your show to be? Today? Yeah. And. I have probably two more questions, but okay. <laughs> one of them sure. is if people could only read one chapter of your book, what would you want that one chapter to be? Oh, that's a great question. I, you, you, that's another great question. I don't know. I am going to say, oh, geez, 
I'm just going to say chapter one. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter one is falling down. And the reason I say that is because I went from the book starts out in 1971, and I just won the junior championship at Portland Golf Club. I beat my friend Bobby Atkinson for the junior championship. And again, that's another story, right? You know, mm -hmm. one of those really cool stories, you know, winning the junior championship at Portland Golf Club. And you know, about 10 days later, I'm in the hospital after a massive water ski accident. You know, so it's the really how we live our lives in the unexpected, because who knew that that was ever going to happen? You know, the accident part, we didn't know. Going from this joyous state to, oh my God, I want to show you something. And I know that the viewers may not be able to see this. Mm -hmm. So this is something I have um, on my desk. And it says, for the listeners, it says, keep smiling. And even when the shit hits the fan, even when the shit was hitting the fan in the 20s, even when I was struggling, I still kept a smile on my face. And I went back when I interviewed some people about my book and they said, what do you remember about me being in the hospital? They said, you were always smiling. So we might as well. Yeah. 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 I so chapter that. one. Chapter you have another one. question? Yeah. So my final question for you is if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, what would you want to tell him? You know, I don't regret anything I've ever, it is what it is. And it's been my journey. I don't know if there's one thing that I would say, and we didn't get too much in, into yoga, but I, I will say that what's coming to my mind right now is my biggest yoga lesson. My biggest yoga lesson is, isn't how well to do triangle or bow pose or cobra or anything. My biggest lesson in yoga was this. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Just do your yoga. And especially that first part, don't worry about it, forget about it. It's so easy and it was so easy for me, even with that smile on my face, to be worrying about it, you know? And again, without going down that, that rabbit hole, when I was doing some yoga and one of my yoga teachers from India and I was arguing with him at the time, this is more my 40s, you know, he just said, Michael, don't worry about it, forget about it, just do the yoga. <laughs> And I went, oh, and with, you know, I was crying. I was mad. And I'd give him a bunch of money and I wanted my money back. No money back. And within a week or two, my whole body had just shifted and it changed. I stopped worrying about it. That worry was dragging me down, but not forgetting about it. I was holding on to dear life because if I could hold on to this and then people would go, oh, wow, look at Michael. He's got da 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 no, don't worry about, forget about, just do the yoga. The other thing that I would say is save 10 bucks a week or something, <laughs> whatever the amount is, right? Yeah. 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 I like that phrase. Yeah. And you could substitute do yoga with whatever you want to do. <laughs> or do meditation or like don't worry about, forget about it, take a walk. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry about, forget about it, have coffee. Don't worry about <laughs> it, forget about it, hold each other's hands. You know, whatever. <laughs> awesome. Well, I loved interviewing you today. It, it was a pleasure. And again, you, you asked really great questions that I had not been asked before. So I appreciate that. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, um, I like challenges. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Awesome. And where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? 
Well, one of the things I, I mentioned earlier was, was endless stages. And part of where I'm at in my world today is getting as many voices out there as possible. And it doesn't matter whether it's a voice about trauma or life or business or whatever it might be. We want to get as many voices out of the world as possible. The passion is if we are doing that and there's other places where people aren't able to get their voices out, perhaps by us getting our voices out, we're going to push against that and get more people to be open to share their story, to have that freedom. It's really, really super important. Um, so it's really simple, endlessstages.com. We have a free group. Once you join the group, you get access to a free membership site, which has some various trainings in it, some video trainings, all self-paced type stuff. And it's all free because we just want to get, you know, people's voices out there. So endlessstages.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.